Welcome to Lift Your Legacy. My name is Jacob Rupp, father, husband, and rabbi. And each week, we bring you an inspiring person or message to help you unlock your inner potential and create change that will impact the future. Thank you for listening, and let's get to it. Okay, well, thank you very much. I've taken a little bit of a hiatus on the uh, on the podcasting because, uh, you know, just thinking about things and how I wanted it to progress. Um, I appreciate tremendously all of the ongoing support. And uh, we're switching the format a little bit. There will still be some interviews, um, but I'm also transitioning to providing some of my own content. So what you should hear for the next couple of podcast episodes would be more personal stuff, uh, a little bit more teaching, and hopefully different ways I can deliver value to you. As always, I really value your input and if possible, I would appreciate if you would reach out on any of the social channels uh, or just email me, rabbirupp at gmail.com or jrupp at h.edu uh, and provide some suggestions for me of how I could better serve. And one of the things that I'm hoping you will see at this point is that we are extremely focused on living a better life. And one of the most important components of that is getting the direction and the one-on-one -on -one work that you need in order to live better. So I am a strong proponent of coaching. I do a lot of coaching myself, and I would encourage you, if you're listening to this, to please do what many other people have done. Reach out. Let's have a conversation. There's no obligation to you whatsoever uh, to see if we might be a good fit to work together. And if that might not be the case, I would be thrilled to introduce you to any of the multitude of options and networks and people that I know who could provide that help. So again, please reach out via social channels, whatever it might be. I don't think I'm too hard to find. Certainly not, I hope. And, uh, and, and let me know how I could be of benefit to you. Thank you so much. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. Thank you so much for joining us today. We are on How to Lead an Awesome Seder part number three. It's actually the third installment of this series. I am, as always, thrilled and honored for you to be a part of this journey. And I hope I can provide some value for you to lead an awesome service. Now, we are holding at where we, again, go back episode one, episode two, where all the other billions of people that are, that are giving these kinds of things um, but we are at the part of the Seder where we are about to go into the essential part of Magid, essential part of telling the story, and it contextualizes. All of this is con context, because if you have proper context, so then you're able to understand what, what's going on, right? So it starts off a very famous part of the Seder where we say, and it is this, you're supposed to pick up the matzah, and you say, it is this that has stood for our fathers and for us. For not just one stood against us, but in every generation, they stood against us to try to destroy us, and the Holy One, blessed be He, saves us from their hand. Now, boom, awesome. What in the heck does that mean? So now we're going to get into the essential component of the Seder, which is appreciating the context of why we're talking about this by starting with an appreciation for the awesome reality called anti-Semitism. Now, you'd say, awesome reality, what's wrong with you? How do you say such a thing? And the reality is that from someone who comes from a Jewish perspective and looks at this opportunity called anti-Semitism, it's actually something that is not strange. It's not weird. It's not like we don't know why it is. It's right here and we talk about it every single year. So there's a concept it says, it is, it is this, and you're supposed to 
Uh, cover the matzah and pick up the second cup of wine, rather than say, right? Cover the matzah, pick up the second cup of wine. It is this, it's now. What, what is this? So it goes back to this concept that there was someone called Abraham, and Abraham made a covenant with God, and God basically said to Abraham, I promise your ancestors will, uh, your, I'm sorry, your future, your, your descendants will, uh, will go down into Egypt, and then I will save them. So the interesting thing is there's a concept that anti-Semitism is very much a part of Jewish history. It is a conversation between God and the Jewish people by which we learn things from the experiences that we have. People think to themselves, that's terrible. I don't want to do that. The answer is like, well, that's a really ineffective way to look at anything. Rather to appreciate that it's not just random hate, but it's targeted against us because it's trying to relate a message to us. And also the thing is that the story, we already know how it ends, which is that God's going to save us. So it's fascinating to look at this and then think about how, again, it's a crazy, crazy thing because it incredibly suggests that there is control over our history and over world history when you look at all of the um, situations of anti-Semitism and you realize we've never been wiped out and it happens in every generation, more or less, and um, it is what it is. And that's, and that's how it goes. And so we can appreciate that we are part of a, a much bigger scene. Okay, keep going. Now you uncover the monsters and you say, go and learn. Go and learn, which is very interesting. What does that mean? What Lavan uh, the Aramean sought to do to Yaakov, the forefather, Pharaoh decreed only on the males, but Yaakov sought to uproot them all as it is written. As is written, uh, an Aramean sought to destroy our father Yaakov, and Yaakov went down to Egypt. He was there until never, and became a great nation, strong and populous. Now, just for someone who's not familiar, basically the way that all Talmudic study works is they give you a piece of text and then they break down all the different parts in the text and they explain what it all means. So now you look at the Seder, right? And for someone who's uninitiated to Talmudic study, you say, what the heck? Like, what's going on? Like, why do you break it down? Why don't you just tell me all the different ideas? It's just following a way, again, this is a document that's roughly 2,000 years old, and it's goes along with all the other documents that are 2,000 years old, namely the Talmud, of how Jews have studied text forever. And the way that we study text is, we learn basically a big piece of information, we learn all the little pieces of information, and then we use the original text as hyperlinks to all the other information that's there. So this is totally normal, unless you've never done this before, at which point it's a little bit strange, okay? So the initial thing is we go to this idea of love on right? Lavan. Interesting enough, who's Lavan? What does his name mean? I even picked the shirt special for you, right? Lavan is white, right? Now, not, not, he's not a white man as the prodological, whatever it might be, bad guy. That's not what we're saying, right? But Lavan means white. And, and it doesn't mean the white is evil either. But what it's essentially saying was that Lavan's personality was that he looked like a good guy. He tried to act like a good guy. He tried to say to Jacob, by the way, you know, he said, I, I, you're, you're, I like you. It's all good. I gave you my daughters. I gave you my, my, my money, all this kind of stuff. If you look back into the Bible, though, what the Haggadah is telling us is that Lavan actually is one of the most destructive figures in all of Jewish history. And you think to yourself, that's crazy. That's a pretty distinguished list from Haman, Ahasuerus, Hitler, Paro. Like, why is the Haggadah pulling out Lavan and, and defining Lavan as the ultimate bad guy? Now, first of all, we're going to say, why are we talking about bad guys in the first place? Shouldn't this be a beautiful commemorative story of God saving us from Egypt so that, you know, we can all be happy? How many other holidays start with all this negativity before we go to the positivity? And the answer is, 
that we're not interested. The Seder is not interested in being a celebration dance. You're not spiking the matzah, you know, behind the table as, as the end of Yes, now God has saved us. No, that's not what we're doing. We're appreciating the context for our history and how we're built for the practical lesson that it's supposed to mean something to us in our lives. So we're learning about this idea of what anti-Semitism looks like and how it works and what's the context. Now, the reason why that's interesting is of all the anti-Semites, Lavan is not usually someone that we categorize as someone that is like such a bad dude. Like ultimately, what did he do? Well, let's find out. Basically, he was Rivka's brother and Yaakov, Jacob, went and worked for him. And basically what happened was that, that Jacob says, you know, I, I, love, I love your daughter, your daughter, uh, Rachel, Rachel, right? And I want to marry her. And, and Lovin says, cool, you know, you got to work for me and better you than somebody else. And he worked seven days, seven years for him. And then the night of the wedding, that Lovin switches the girls. And, and his oldest daughter, Leah, who Jacob did not have that kind of a connection with, Lovin tricked them, tricked Jacob. And there's a whole story, and that's not for now because we're I, I spend the whole time on this and it's a great story, but we're not going to do that right now. But basically, Lovin sought to switch the daughters on Jacob. And what was that all about? So now, unlike how we like to necessarily see the Torah stories, so in in, in, in the Torah, really, the bad guys, again, this is nowadays with, with we could appreciate this totally. It's like you can't be a minor figure to oppose a great goodness. You got to be a really big bad guy, right? So if Lava, Jacob, who's kind of like the, again, I'm gonna, I'm sorry, I'm just going to say it, you know, in colloquial terms, Jacob, who is the um, who is the essence, is the ultimate good guy, so to speak, the Luke Skywalker, if you want, he has to have a Darth Vader, right? So he has to have someone that's equal in power, so to speak, to him. So if, if Yaakov was this tremendous builder of the Jewish people, Lavan had to be his counter, right? And what does the counter try to do? He doesn't just try to beat up Jacob. No, what he does is two things. First of all, he switches it so that, theoretically speaking, the Jewish people couldn't even get born, right? He's trying to uproot the Jewish people from even starting, right? And he also perceived very deep. He also perceived the following. So eventually what happens is Jacob marries um, Leah, then he marries Rachel, and he's working for Lovin, and God thinks Jacob's doing a great job, and God wants to reward Jacob, and God makes Jacob's, uh, uh, the, the, the arrangement, the business arrangement, they work out. God makes Jacob very successful, and because he's working for Lovin, makes Lovin very successful, and eventually Jacob's like, I got to get out of here. This guy's terrible. I have to go back to the land of Israel. That's, that's where we're supposed to go, and on the way, Jacob takes off at night with his wives and his kids and, and all of their flocks, which is his legally, and Lovin confronts him, finds him and confronts him, and Lovin's like, what are you doing? And Jacob's like, uh, I'm leaving because you're a jerk. And Lovin's like, uh, Lovin essentially says, what, what do you mean, a jerk? You know, you're, you're, the, the, the women that you have, they're, they're my daughters and the, the, all of the money you've made, it's, it's, it's my money ultimately. And, and everything you are is coming from me. And the fascinating thing is, why is that such a fundamentally anti-Semitic concept? Is that the nature, the essence, the whole story of Passover is illustrating that we belong to no one other than God, that we are unique to no one other than God. We are, we are a singly unique nation. As I spoke about in part one, I think, or part two, or should talk about right now, is the Passover Seder illustrates that the way that we came out of slavery is unlike any other person coming out of slavery, any other nation coming out of slavery. It is signifying that there is something unique and special about the Jewish nation. And the thing that Lavan said to Jacob is, everything that you are, all of the wives that you have, all the kids that you have, all the money that you have, it's all mine. And you exist not as your own entity, but you exist under my umbrella. And so the fascinating concept with that is that when a person, when we attempt 
to think about ourselves and we attempt to think about what does it mean to be Jewish, we have a tendency to figure out how do I rectify my Jewish identity with my American identity, my Spanish identity, whatever it might be. And the reality is that never happens. And we have to have an intrinsic appreciation based on what this Passover story is talking about of the fact that we are unique and special as Jews. And that's why it says he went to destroy us. It's because he tried to uproot us. He wanted to make us that we never existed. And when we did exist and we came into existence, he didn't want to acknowledge that we were our own person. Great. That's what it says. And he went down to Egypt, right? That's what it says. Jacob went down to Egypt. God pushed him into it, right? So a lot of times we spend ourselves, and again, with little kids, maybe you don't bring this up, but with big, with big kids or yourself, you think about it. So often we think about, ah, if only I had done things differently, it would have worked out better. If only I had invested here and not there. If only I had married here and this person and not that person. If only I had taken this job and not that job. We make these decisions and we try to attribute and we try to retroactively play our life back and try to avoid all of our big pitfalls. And the very beginning is God is putting you in Egypt. You and he put you there, not you. You made that decision and you should own it because it was God pushing you there, divine decree, not you, right? Abiding, abiding there. So what did Jacob do? The term tells us that Jacob didn't go down to Egypt. He wants to be there forever, but rather it was only to be there, right? As it says, um, as a temporary a temporary place. So that's very fundamental and important to us because ultimately, what does that mean for us as Jews nowadays? That we have to appreciate that wherever we are in the world, ultimately, we're always on a place to get back to Israel, right? We're always on a, we're, we're living in an environment in a temporary state. The world is temporary. Our homes are temporary. And again, everyone that's tripping crazy like because of Corona right now, the fascinating idea is that from a deeply Jewish perspective, We've always been upside down. We've never lived in any kind of re real peace. And the times that we're lucky that we have stability in our life, we have to appreciate it as a gift. It's not guaranteed. There's a famous story in the Talmud where it talks about, uh, and it's an, an analogous case of, a, of, a, of, a, of two rabbis. They see an island and, uh, and, and, and one rabbi is like, this is a great island. And the other rabbi is like, it's not an island. And the first rabbi says, come on, let's set it. We'll set up a house. We'll build a fire. They build a fire and it's a big fish and it turns over. The rabbis are floating away. And so the ultimate idea is it's explaining that that's how we have to look at life is that ultimately we look at life and we make the mistake of thinking that everything's permanent and that life is permanent and that, and that our jobs are permanent and our homes are permanent. And the reality is nothing is permanent. It's always, we're always in a process. And so we're always sojourners wherever we go until we go back to the land of Israel, until we dwell in that place where we essentially are um, um, uh, 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 showing off of our, uh, showing off ourselves and being truly who we are. Good. We were small in number, right? What does it mean? Because we were, there were 70 souls when we went and then God made us really big and we became a big nation. What does it mean? It says that we became a big nation in, 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 in Egypt because we remained true to our core. We remained true to being the Jewish nation. Right? It says we're strong and populous, and explains that, that we reproduced. And again, the, the different sources speak about that. The idea that women would have six babies every single every single year. Again, I have four kids already, and that's a lot. But in the, the Jews in, the, in, in Egypt were having six babies every year. It was a crazy thing. We multiplied like crazy. And, and the, whole, the whole land became filled with it. And it says populous. I have given you, and again, it quote now on the verse, it says, and we made you populous. So the, there's, a, there's a prophecy that speaks about it. And it's, and again, a very strange thing. Like, what the heck does this mean? Right? Watch this one. It's great. Right? So it says, I, I, um, I gave you, it's a, it's a prophecy from Yeheskel. It says, I gave you to thrive like seeds in the field. And you multiplied and grew. You became too numerous to count. Your breasts were prepared. Your hair had grown, but you were naked and bare. And I passed over you and I saw you wallowing in your own blood. Like, what's going on right now? Right? And I said to you, through your blood, you shall live. Through your blood, you shall live. 
Strange, right? So what is, what's the story talking about? So it's very fascinating. It means basically God put us down into Egypt. And when we were in the land of our impression, we developed and we grew and we got big and we became a nation. And all of a sudden we were like the, <clears throat> we were like the, the, uh, the caterpillar in the chrysalis. And we were, so again, that's the idea of talking about like breasts and all that stuff. It's saying that we had shown the signs of maturity. We were ready to go. We had, we were ready to break out. And this famous line, through your blood, you will live. What does that mean? So there's an idea that you not, oh, this is so great. Not only do you have to be physically ready to go, but you actually have to do something to walk yourself out of it. So the blood that it's talking about was there, there was the blood of the carbon Pesach of the of the of the um, ritual lamb sacrifice that we were going to do in Egypt, and also the blood of circumcision. And there was an idea that that was the blood ultimately we know we put on the doorpost, right? So it's not just. I'm ready to move, you know, put me in coach, right? No, you, you got to be ready to get put in, but you got to do something to, to, to allow, to en enable the process to happen. So we had grown, we were ready to go out of Egypt, but God said, I need your buy-in, I need your mitzvah, I need your action to get you out of there, right? Which is a very deep thing if you think about it, because we oftentimes think, why aren't I getting another chance? And oftentimes the reason why we're not getting the chance that we're looking for is simply because we haven't done the action yet to his, to actually have initiated the process. So again, I could be the world's greatest, you name it. You know, I, I wrote the greatest book in the world. It's like, great, did you pass that off to any publishers? And it's like, no, I'm just waiting to be discovered. So the Jewish people had written the greatest book, but God was saying, look, you gotta, you gotta pass it on. You gotta do the next step. You have to get involved in the, in the process. Thank you. Um, so then it says, so then it says the following, and the Egyptians in, in, invented, this is, this is like crazy if you think about it. The Egyptians invented evil about us. They oppressed us and opposed hard labor. So that's talking about what's our condition like in there. So now we know how we got down there. Now what's it like that we're in kind of the belly of the beast, so to speak? It said, we, 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 it says, come and, this is awesome. Again, it explains everything. It says, come and, and let us be clever with them, lest they grow too numerous. And if a war come, he will ally himself and talk about the Jews and Egypt. Fairest thing to the Jews. There's lots of Jews here. And um, they're probably going to turn against us. And the interesting thing is, you think to yourself, excuse me, J J Joseph fixed the entire Egyptian economy. And the Jews were living and we were paying taxes and we lived in Egypt and we had no problem. We weren't going to overturn the government. Where in the world? And this is a fast, this is where the first time we name the Jewish nation, the first time the name the Jewish nation is mentioned is by Pharaoh coming up with some anti-Semitic plot against how we're going to try to overturn the world. Fascinating, right? So the idea was they think to themselves, they're going to take it. Now, what did we get? We're going to get kind of deep here. But you'd ask yourself, like, what caused that crazy turn of events, right? What, what caused the, the Pharaoh to think that we were going to take over. And so the interesting thing was, uh, this is the Medrash brought down by the base of late, what big, whatever rabbi, big rabbi, right? And, and so he talks about this idea that, that, um, that ultimately the Jews knew we were going to be enslaved for 200 years. And when Jacob died and, and when Joseph died and all the, the, the forefathers died and they were the ones who were kind of the, the torch bearers of the Jewish people. So we, the, the children were left and we thought to ourselves, we're going to be, you know, many years, hundred years in a, in an environment that is, we, you know, foreign to us, and we look a little bit different than them. So we don't want to look, we don't want to stick out. We don't want to be different. And so as a result, I, I don't know what this means, but it says they try to like sew back their circumcisions and stop doing circumcisions so that we should look the same as everybody else. And as soon as that happened, it said God put in Pharaoh's heart, the nation's heart, the idea of rejecting us. So it's a very fascinating concept because oftentimes the greatest destruction as Jews that we can do for ourselves is to lose sight of what makes us special and makes us unique. And very often when we're trying very hard to fit into something and 
and to pretend we're someone who we're not. So then the people that we're trying so hard to, you know, jump in on. And again, this is like such a this is such a deep idea, because if you look at like American race relations and all that kind of stuff, it's fascinating. Right. Not that. Well, not to get political, but it's like, you know, the, the right way is never I'm just going to be everybody else. The right way is never I'm going to fit into the crowd. Ultimately, again, you see this. I, I just gave a lecture on this. Yeah, maybe it was on here. I don't remember. But this idea that your greatest opportunity is to embrace your individuality and that the, and your flock is going to come to you. So as long as we were good with who we were and that we were honest with who we were and we saw that we had our own unique gifts and talents, great. All good. As soon as we wanted to get rid of that, so then the nation that we were trying to be said, hey, what, like, who are you guys? And they became very suspect of us. Now, like, what are you trying to take us over? That's why you're trying to be someone that you're not. So that was the, that was the concept, right? They oppressed us. This is crazy. It says they had put over taskmasters over him, the people, in order to torture with the burdens. And they built stories from Pharaoh, Petom uh, uh, and Ramses. That's that's very interesting. What does that mean? So so Petom and Ramses, the Talmud explains. I'm, t- I'm talking fast, but you know, is what it is. Trying to get, get the, lot, the lot, lot done. The Talmud says, that Pedum and Ramses were, were these two Egyptian cities that were unique because they were built on either, there's an argument, Rav and Shmuel, right, about uh, what the different cities were built on. One says it was a very active fault line, and the other was that it was built on quicksand. And so basically what you have to imagine is the Jews would go out, they'd break their backs all day long, and as they went home, they turned around, they saw all of their work sinking into the ground, right? So the fascinating concept was it was deeply psychologically damaging. It was not just, you know, hey, let's work hard. Because again, we're Jews, we like working hard, it's fine, right? But it's the fact that we're going to make you work work hard with something that you don't ever see the fruits of your labor. And as a result of that, it's psychologically crushing because as long as we're able to assign meaning to the work that we do, so we're able to do that work, we're able to do hard work. If we know why, you know, it says, uh, who said it? I don't remember. But it says, if you know why, you can tolerate any how. But what they were doing was they were sinking our why into the ground and we had no why. And then the how became absolutely unbearable because we did not know what we were doing. Great. Going on, they put hard labor upon us, as is written in Egypt, work the children of Israel strenuously, right? So they made us work very hard. The Talmud also explains that they would basically have us fill out a, a flyer, uh, not a flyer, a form of what we were trying to, what we were good at, right? And then we had, they made us do uh, they made us do all of the wrong kinds of work. So for me, I, they would have made me be a CPA, right? Uh, and they would have taken, you know, like they, they find the parts that you are specifically terrible at and make you work those pieces. So again, practically speaking, if we would apply this, you go and give a speech on the, the Haggadah in your office, right? So two things, you have to have meaningful work and you have to be naturally good at what you do. Yeah, and, and be cultivating those skills and not just something that's completely outside of your skill set. Okay, fantastic, moving on. It says, we cried out. This is the third part, right? The third part is when we are now in the process of us initiating our own redemption. So we cried out to God, and God, the God of our, to Hashem, the God of our fathers, he heard our voices, he saw our privation, toil, and distress. What does it mean we, we called out to him? So what it says that basically, and this is a very deep idea, it says, that, it says that during the many days the king of Egypt died, and the children of Israel groaned from the servitude, and they cried, and the prayers rose up to God. Fascinating. So basically what it was is that we got to a place in our uh, suffering where we stopped all of the negotiating. And we got to a place in our stuff rating. We stopped all, you know, again, it's a great thing. You know, we always try to make packs with God. I don't know if you try to do that. If only I do X, Y, and Z, right? And if only I'll be, a, I'll be a good little boy, I'll be a good little girl, and then you should give me these things, all that stuff. God is not interested in that. 
at least in this case, clearly, right? We, we mentioned this concept that God took us out as a nation. That's why we say all who are hungry come and eat. God took us out because we were a nation, because of who we were deep down intrinsically. And so it was not about rationalizing and negotiating and doing more mitzvot or doing any of that kind of thing, with the exception of those two that we we're going to talk about. But basically, God wanted to boil us down to our root essence of who we were. And when we come to that place where there's no further down to go and we're stripped down to everything that we have, and the cry comes out, that's the cry that God hears to. When you're done with all of your stupid rationalizations and you're just able to be real, you say, ah, this hurts, I can't do it without you. God says, boom, that's what you're looking for the whole time. Very good. So then we come down. So that, that, was the, that was the thing that he heard. And so it says, as soon as you get down to the point where you are not trying to rationalize yourself and act like you're better than who you are or try to make, you know, oh, I'm in control of this relationship, Mr. Coronavirus. I'm just going to, you know, do a couple more mitzvahs, so to speak, and then the coronavirus is going to go away. No, if you reach a point where you are are so reduced down to nothing. That is the voice that God heard. And because it says what? He heard the voices and he remembered the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And you think about what were Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob doing? They weren't out there in a nice tuxedo trying to look really good and make negotiations with God. They called to God from the depths of their heart because they literally had nothing else going on with them. They were, they were, their essence was prayer. Their essence was, I'm coming close to you. So we, he stripped us down until we look like who we come from, who we come from, who are scrappy and we are motivated and we are people that can call the God in distress. And we don't look at our problems as ways of get, of God kicking us in the face, but rather those are opportunities for us to get closer to God because that's all that we can call out to. So again, th this is very deep stuff. A lot of times people think I can only be close to God when everything's good. Totally not a Jewish approach. People think, you know, bad stuff happens to us and it is what it is. Totally not Jewish approach. When we see difficulty, the Jewish approach is great. It's pulling me back to my essence. I'm great under pressure. That's where I really come out. And we thrive. And God says, ah, that? I know those people because I knew those people's ancestors, right? He saw the priv privation. It means breaking up a family life. What does that mean? Basically, that at the end of the day, the Egyptians had reduced us to such that we couldn't even go home and, and, and have the, con the, co the, con the comfort of family. They broke the husbands and the wives up. They, 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 now, again, that's a, such a crazy idea because we might be sitting around Pesach time this year and coronavirus. And everyone's like, oh, God, I can't imagine. I just have to be around my family. That is the thin line between sanity and sanity. When, when God broke the family, when the Egyptians broke the family down, that's when the Jews really reach rock bottom. And for us, the flip side is, God is giving us the opportunity to come together with our family. So we can look around the table, we can say, I'm so happy, I can have a nice conversation with my husband or wife, I can have a nice conversation with my kids, right? The toil, what was the toil? So this is fantastic, right? It explains, it says that this is the children, because it said that every newborn son should be cast in the river, and every newborn, uh, newborn daughter should let live. So there's an idea that, um, that, uh, that, that nothing symbolizes hope more than the children, right? And so the idea was that, that God was not only trying to break apart, not God, I'm sorry, the Egyptians were trying to break us down to such a weird thing, God, that, that the Egyptians were taking away our family structure and then he took away our future. And you can, again, you can, you can handle anything if you think the time will come when you can get out of it, it'll be okay. God said, nope, you don't have any future either. The Egyptians said, you don't have any future. Why do I keep saying God here by accident? It keeps slipping in. It's because ultimately we're getting reduced down to a place where we can come out. We reach a point of desperation where we can fly out of that and dis distress and, it's, and God's seeing the pressure that we're under. And then it says that our prayers rose up. I'm sorry, one second. Almost done. I'm only going for half an hour today, so that's why I'm rushing a little bit. Then it said, and God took us out of Egypt with a great strand and outstretched arm, great awe, signs, and wonders. What does that mean? God himself came down. So again, it's a crazy thing because if you think to yourself, you know, um, 
I want to shoot for just maybe a little bit more money this year, or I want to shoot for a little bit, you know, better luck at, 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 in this thing or that thing. No, God brought us to a point where we were so broken that the only thing we needed was to go right back to him. And we, and it wasn't about, you know, fixing the little chunks in our life. We had to completely redo the entire structure. So God himself comes down into the world, right? And he's the one that takes us out. And, and he's going to be the one, it says, he's going to pass through the Egypt. Again, Egypt's not, not a great place. You wouldn't expect someone, you know, you wouldn't expect God in Egypt because of all the places like Egypt was like the worst place on earth. God's like, nope, those are my people. I'll go into the worst places on earth to get my people out because I love them so much. Him, not anybody else. We talked about that. No messenger, no seraph, no the, the angels. And then it explains how God's hand, he literally is like invading into the world to save us. Because again, that's the idea is when we get to a point where we are so lost and we are so broken and we are so in line with who we truly are in our essence, then you unleash, ultimately you unleash the ultimate power, which is God himself and no other, no other, no nothing, nothing else. And, and then God reveals himself to the whole world in the process of saving his people uh, and then it goes through all of the different things, and it explains all of the all of the makos, which is a very deep idea. Again, this is a crazy, crazy, crazy thing. We'll end on this, and we'll hopefully have one fourth one before the seder. Um, is that is that um, is that the fascinating concept is with every little bit of pain that went on the Egyptians, right? Which again, we're not celebrating, but but basically, you know, they they got what was coming to them with every little bit of pain. So there was an element of refuah. There was an element of benefit for the Jews. So it's a fascinating concept that that as we watch the world, God was not only bringing the Egyptians down, he was rising us up. And again, how does that relate to anything relevant? Well, it's incredibly relevant because if you try to look with the Jewish lenses on the circumstance that we have right now, again, it's not about pain. It's not about suffering. It's not about frustration. There's an idea. There's a secret that hidden inside of every tragedy that comes upon you know, every tragedy, there is a seed of something greater, a seed of rebirth, a seed of renewal. And that was that was manifest in all the plagues. That just like God was doing the plagues to the to the, to the what's it called to the to the Egyptians, the Jews were getting better and better. So again, we're looking at the world and we can say there are there are terrible problems. But if you look at the problems, there's always going to be kernels and seeds of opportunity that are sprouting for it. And that's the nature of how God interacts with the world. So again, hopefully what we walked away with today was a basic appreciation of the four paragraphs, paragraph of going down. Down, paragraph of what it was like to be there, the paragraph of what we had to become in order to get God to be involved, and then just what we brought into the world when God comes down into Egypt as a result of us being so in line with our humanity, so in line with our Judaism, and, and that's the whole concept of, of, of the Seder. Then we would go into the Ten Plagues. We'll go into that potentially next time. Um, thank you so much for watching, those of you who have been there. I appreciate it. Again, this is part three, uh, one of three. There should be a fourth, and uh, thank you for listening. Happy Passover. There you have it, folks, another inspiring episode. If you enjoyed this, I ask you to please share this with your friends and to like us over on Rabbi Rupp through Facebook or on YouTube. And the more that we're able to get these important messages out, the more that we can really make an impact in the world. So I encourage you, please, to stay tuned. Uh, we have a ton of amazing speakers coming up and also to tell your friends about it. Thank you very much.